My name's Paul. Um, I know most of you. It's a pleasure to be here and to share a message with you. How many of you know when you read the word that Jesus, Jesus, when he would teach, that he would teach in these parables and stories and they would draw us in and they cause us to think and use our brains and go, what on earth is Jesus talking about? You know, sometimes when we read the words of Jesus, some of the things that he would share would kind of shock us. Anybody ever been shocked by reading something that Jesus said? Yeah, come on. I certainly have. I'll tell you that right now. Well, we're going to pick up in a story where there's a crowd following Jesus, okay? And this crowd believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And what they expected of the Messiah was that he was going to come and bring this magnificent kingdom. He was going to, you know, set them free from Roman oppression. They were oppressed by the Romans at the time. And he was going to come and basically just give them this glorious and incredible kingdom that the Bible had talked about. But when Jesus started talking, this didn't line up with their expectations. Let's pick up. I want to read this story this morning and, and trust that God is going to speak through it. And before I read this in Luke, I'm just going to pray. God, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that it's powerful. Thank you that it speaks to us today. Thank you, Jesus. You just don't tell us what we want to hear, but you tell us what we need to hear. We just ask this morning that your word would speak to us, and we just say right now, God, that we open ourselves to receive what you have. Amen. Luke 14, 25 to 23, it says this, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Talk about shocking. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desires to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or, what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down, and um, sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 men to meet him and come against him with 20,000. If not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Can you imagine hearing Jesus saying this? I mean, I'm reading this, I'm like, what are you on about, Jesus? Like, what are you saying? I have to do what? I have to hate my family? I have to hate, my, hate myself? I have to take up a cross? I have to renounce all that I have? This is shocking, is it not? I, for me, I'm telling you, I, reading this, I'm like, what is Jesus on about? I can imagine the disciples. This isn't the Messiah. This isn't what we signed up for. We were expecting this spectacular kingdom. You know, no more oppression. Rome was going to go away. They were expecting the spoils of a kingdom, the comforts of a good kingdom. They were expecting the convenience and the protection of a good kingdom. They wanted risk-free living. 
But this is not what Jesus came to bring. This is not what he was preparing them for. You see, Jesus is ushering in a spiritual kingdom. And he came so that he could bring the rule and reign of God. This was heaven coming to earth, and Jesus came to usher that in. And with his kingdom came heaven's agenda and heaven's mission, which is what? To rescue people out of darkness and bring them into a kingdom of light. This isn't a battle for people's comfort. This was a battle for people's salvation and eternity. And this is the kingdom that Jesus came to bring. And here Jesus is preparing the disciples to follow him and preparing the disciples to live out the call on their lives. I want to be a part of ushering in the kingdom of God. As someone that's chosen Jesus as Lord and Savior, I want to be a part of what he's doing here on earth. And today I want to look at, I want to look at being a disciple of Jesus. And I want to start by looking at this passage and start with asking this question. What do disciples do? Because Jesus gives, gives us some handles here. So what do disciples do? Well, the first thing I see in this scripture is that disciples make him Lord. Disciples make him Lord. So verse 25 says that the great crowd was accompanying, um, that now the great crowd accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What is he talking about? Hate. You know, when I was reading through Luke 13 and 14, there's lots of other things I could have preached on. There's actually some, maybe some easier things, but I just couldn't get off of this message. I couldn't get off of this little word in this passage and I'm thinking, what is Jesus saying? I, I'm a husband. I'm a father of two incredible, beautiful little girls. You might have saw them running around this morning. And we have a boy on the way. Pretty excited about this. But when I read Jesus say I have to hate my family, I'm telling you it doesn't compute. This is shocking. This is like getting hit with a bucket of cold water. Have anybody ever, have you ever been hit with a bucket of cold water and it just kind of shocks you and jars you? Okay, well, here's a good little story. A long time ago, my friend BJ and I had a house and we rented it out to a whole bunch of guys. And when a new guy would move into the house and he would go have his first shower, well, we knew how to get into that bathroom, and we did, with a bucket of cold water. So he'd get in the shower and thinking he was safe, while we would get in and dump cold water over the shower. Anyone ever had that happen? Okay, I got a great idea. The next time your spouse is having a shower, all right? You know how you get in the bathroom? You take a coat hanger, and you bend it straight, and you just push it in that little hole, and the door will open whether it's locked or not. I'm telling you, it works. See me for other marriage advice. So this was shocking as I'm reading this. And over the and you know, I know that when Jesus says things, he wants us to listen. He said, he who has ears, let him hear. And we've got to dig. So I started digging and looking. And you know what I discovered when I was digging into this particular part? I discovered that this is about lordship. When he references the word hate here in this instance, it's a rhetorical statement. 
he's not speaking about actually this act of hate. He's speaking about priority. He's talking about the priority of the disciples' love and their commitment to him. It's a commitment that should far outstrip all other love and commitment that we have in our lives. I'll put it this way, and we actually sung about this. The light of a candle in comparison to the light of the sun. You see, the light of that candle in comparison to the light of the sun is as if it's darkness, right? It's in the same way that our love for our family in comparison to the love of, of what we should have for God is almost like hatred. It shouldn't even compare. See, what Jesus is talking about here is not feelings of animosity, but actually priority. What will come first in our lives? What will come first? You see, the disciples could not afford to cave in to the whims of parents, of spouses, of children, of siblings. They had a significant call on their lives, and they needed to pursue it. And they needed to put God first if they were going to walk out all of what God had for them. But the same is true of us. We have an incredible call on our lives, and God wants to be that first priority. He's, Jesus came, and here he is. He's challenging this crowd to not find their identity in family, but in relationship and commitment and submission to him. This was incredibly counterculture. Just like for me, thinking about my family, man, I would do anything for my family. Don't get between me and my family. I know we talk about a mama bear and her cubs. Listen, this daddy bear, I will wreck you if you mess with my family. That's just the reality. Like, that's the love and passion that we have for our family. So, but here, these, these people that were listening to Jesus, family was, was so central to their lives. It was the center of society. It was the center of economic activity. You wouldn't own land or have access to land if it wasn't for family. Heck, you didn't even get to choose your spouse with, with just the thoughts of falling in love. No, even your spouse was part of, you know, a, a way to, for your family to, uh, to grow or gain significance or, you know, somehow to gain influence. You would, you would intermarry families intentionally with purpose. Family was a big deal. Family influenced everything back then. So Jesus puts his finger on this thing, family, and he says, Hey, if you truly want to be my disciple then your love for your family must pale in comparison to your love and your commitment to me. I come first. I am the highest priority. Oh, man, me reading this, this hit me hard because I'm telling you, this is easy when you're a single. Yeah, yeah, Lord, you're first. But when you've got a family that, you're, that you want to love and protect and look after, I mean, man, it's really easy for us even to put family before God in our lives. And Jesus puts his finger on this thing, and he says, I come first. We see this in scripture, actually, that he's the highest priority. We see it in Deuteronomy 6.5. It says this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Even Jesus affirms this in the Gospels, we see it in Luke 10, and actually Nate mentioned this. And we see it again in Matthew 22, where it just references this piece of loving the Lord first. But I kept reflecting on that and thinking about it. It says, love the Lord 
your God. You see, this is about lordship. It doesn't even say love your savior. It says love your Lord. Not your buddy, not Jesus your consultant, not your coach, but Lord. This is about lordship. What Jesus is on about in this thing is that if you want to be my disciple, then I must be Lord of your life. You see, lordship is the rulership of God. He's the overseer. He's the king. He's the one calling the shots. And he's the one that we are in submission to. I think for us, many of us, we're so easy. And it's so, it's so easy and, and it's almost like we can be quick to choose Jesus as savior. And we need a savior, don't we? But Jesus came not just to be savior, but to be Lord. They're actually inseparable. Right? You can't have one without the other. Thanks, Frank Sinatra. You know, love and marriage, you just can't have one without the other. It's the same thing. Lord and Savior. It's not one or the other. It's both. He wants to be Lord. And with him as Lord, then we get to open up our hands and our lives and we let him lead. And we let him direct us. And we do that with all that we have and with all that we are. We submit it to his lordship. You see, Jesus as Lord of our lives means that we're subject to serve his plans and his purposes. What else do I see when I read this passage? Well, the next point for us, what else do disciples do? Well, they die to self. What does it say? It says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You know, I think when we hear Jesus talking about carrying our cross, I think we often think about the burdens or the difficulties or the challenges and the hard things that maybe we're facing and going through. I think we're quick to focus on ourselves in this. But you know, Jesus doesn't want you to carry your stuff. What does he say? He says, cast your cares on me. Because my yoke is easy and my burden is like, cast it on me, give it to me. Whatever those hard things are, believe it or not, when Jesus is mentioning that you have to carry your own cross, he's not talking about you carrying your own burdens. He's not saying you have to carry your junk and your stuff and your hardship. And listen, those things are real. We face difficult stuff in life, don't we? I'm sure many of you are hearing this going, yeah, Paul, for real, like you don't even know. It's true. But God says we got to give that to him. But when he reads and when we see this, what he's talking about here isn't our stuff. He's actually talking about, he's talking about the, the cross, which is, it was a symbol, but it was also a tool of death. And uh, this, is, this is wild, but if you think about it, the cross was an instrument, literally, of death. The Romans invented it. To, to somehow make death the most painful it could possibly be for somebody. Like, this isn't, this isn't just a small thing. You see, when Jesus says that, hey, you've got to carry your cross, this is actually about something dying. Something dying. And what is that? Well, we're to die to self. The word says that we're to die to self and that we're to let Christ live in and through us. Paul says it this way in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, 
I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, it isn't about us. Being a disciple isn't about us. Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from judgment, but then he brings us into this kingdom. Katie ministered a bit, just highlighting a bit of the peace of the kingdom of God. And, and he wants us to walk in his kingdom and to live in his kingdom. And actually, we're the ones that bring his kingdom. Pretty amazing that he does it in and through us. And he makes us a new creation so that we can do that very thing. And in his kingdom, God gives us identity and he gives us purpose to fulfill the call in our lives. And what does he ask of us? How are we going to do that? Well, we're certainly not going to do it in our own strength. But the word says if we want to be his disciple, that we've got to die to self. You see, when we live for ourselves, when we live to try and satisfy our flesh, it will never be satisfied. I've tried that. I'm sure some of you could say the same. It won't be satisfied. You see, the goal of our lives is not to live our best life, contrary to maybe what everyone thinks. It isn't to just live our best lives. It isn't just to get the most we possibly can out of every minute of every day and just experience it all. Because you know what? It's actually impossible if that's the target, if that's the goal, it's impossible. It's never going to be enough. You're never going to have seen enough or experienced enough or had enough. You see, there's an unquenchable thirst in all of us when we try and quench it with the things of the world. We cannot satisfy that thirst in us with the things of the world. It cannot be fulfilled that way. Just, do you remember what Jesus said when he was talking to the woman at the well who was getting water and he asks her for a drink? And he starts to reference this. He says, he says everyone who drinks of this water in John 4, 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. When we, when we look for satisfaction in the things around us, we're going to be thirsty again. Then he says, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see, there's something fulfilling about dying to self and finding our satisfaction in him. There's something fulfilling about our flesh, ourselves, being crucified on that cross with Jesus and living for him. It's fulfilling and it's satisfying. What else do I see when we think about dying to self? Well, dying to self also means that we're not prioritizing self-preservation. Let me say that again. Dying to self means that we're not prioritizing self-preservation. Honestly, I'm blown away over this last while at how Christians have focused on self-preservation. I'm blown away how I've focused on self-preservation. I'm not pointing a finger. I'm just calling it what it is. That even for me, that this has become a priority. And I know that, you know, when we look at life without Jesus, that, yeah, you know, it's actually natural. I think the highest law that, that human beings live by is self-preservation, right? Don't die at all costs, right? All right, you guys are quiet. All right. 
All right. Okay, so, so you guys agree with me. All right. But you know, life is fragile, right? And I think over these last two years, we've certainly recognized that. We've seen that. But self-preservation isn't the goal. Trying to prolong our existence isn't the goal. I know it's challenging to hear, but, you know, Kate mentioned last week that who by worrying can add a day to their life? We can't. We can't add a day. God hasn't called us to live by that. I know that it's a natural response to try and preserve and protect, but it just isn't what God has called us to as disciples. Self-preservation isn't the call. God has called us to lay hands on the sick and to pray for healing. He's called us to seek out the lost and the brokenhearted. He's called us to risk with our lives. You know, it's interesting that, that right now, I would say, we've probably been the most apprehensive to, to reach out than we've ever been. But it's in times like this that, yes, even in the middle of the pandemic, God has called us to reach out and to pray for the sick and to reach out to the lost and the broken and the hurting. Because now more than ever, I would say that people recognize that they need a Savior. Amen. I don't know about the conversations you're having, but I'm having conversations with people and they recognize that they need a hope. And our hope is found in Jesus. We have an eternal hope and a future, right? And it exists beyond this life. And we're part of a kingdom and the word says that it never spoils, that it never fades. And no one and no thing can ever take it from us. Not in this life or in the next. You see, I can't afford to live my life motivated by self-preservation. Luke 9, 24 to 25 says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? You see, the call for us as disciples of Jesus is to stop living for ourselves and to start living for him. I don't want to live for my comfort and convenience. I don't want to settle. I want all of what he has. I was reading this passage in Psalms and I just couldn't get it out of my head. It says Psalms 85, 5. It said, blessed is the man whose strength is in you whose heart is set on pilgrimage. I want all of what the Lord has for me, no matter what the risk and no matter where it takes me. And this is what it means to be a, a disciple and a follower of Jesus. What else do I see that Jesus is telling us about being a disciple? Well, what else do disciples do? Well, they count the cost. Disciples count the cost. Luke 14, 28 says, for which of you desires to build a tower and does not sit down and count the cost? Otherwise, he has enough to complete it. Or whether he has enough to comp complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish it. What's Jesus on about? Well, he's talking about counting the cost. At the simplest, most basic level, He's saying, get the information. Get the information. 
He's saying to the crowd, before you do anything significant, sit down, think about it, count the cost. I think we do that on any big decision, right? We usually, we go through the numbers, we do the math, we work out the calculations, and then we make a decision. I hope that's how you make decisions. (laughs) That's how we should make decisions, but it's the same. You know, even for me in my life, in this last season, I, I started a business in the middle of a pandemic. What an interesting time to do that. But I counted the cost. I took the time, I processed it, I thought about it, prayed about it, I got input, I got perspective. I think if I hadn't done those things, I probably would have thrown in the towel and got a job by now. It hasn't been easy. But I counted the cost and did it. Well, how much more important is it for us to count the cost when we know that God has called us to be a follower of him? If we want to be his disciples, we need to count the cost. We need to get the information. Do our homework. I need to do my homework. I need to understand what it is that God is asking of me and what he says. I need to understand what his kingdom is all about. And the answers are all right here. They're in his word. They're in his Bible. They're not in a podcast. They're not in an opinion. Believe it or not, they're not in a preach. They're in his Bible, and we can reference those things, but we've got to get this in us. We've got to consume this. It always comes back to this. I need to do this. I'm not just pointing fingers. I've recognized in this season that I need to go deeper. Because for us, this word is unadulterated. This word is infallible, and it stands. We want to consume it. Why? Why is it so important? Because I would say it this way, that if we don't understand this, that we will never see the, where we will, we will only ever see the cost of being a disciple and we'll never see the privilege. We're only going to ever see the cost if we don't understand the why behind it. And you know what? The cost is a lot. It's inconvenient and it's not easy. But God has a, there's such an incredible privilege of being a disciple and being a follower of Jesus. It's the most incredible thing that we can do with our lives. And friends, it is worth it. But if we want to see that worth, we've got to get our eyes on Jesus. We've got to get his word living in us. Paul said it this way when he talked about hardship. Look at the perspective that he had. He said in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You see, when our eyes are on the eternal things, the temporal difficulties lose their sting. The temporal things lose their luster. We see God and his plans and purposes from eternal perspective, and it gives us a joy and a passion to serve him and put him first in our lives. You know, I've counted that cost in my life. It started years ago when I chose Jesus as Lord and as Savior. But reading this passage again, I'm just reminded afresh that I still have to die to self that I still have to count that cost, that it needs to be fresh revelation, not stale. It's got to be fresh. I need daily bread. But I'm still fully convinced, friends, 
I'm still fully convinced that it's worth it. What else do I see that Jesus is saying? What else do disciples do? This is my last point. Well, disciples surrender all. So when we get the information, when we count the cost, what's our response? How can we not? We just surrender. We surrender all. What does it say in Luke 14 here? It says, he's talking about a story of a king. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 men to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You see, this picture of a warring king isn't just a picture of a king. Jesus is telling us something through a story. See, this king has an army. This king wants peace, kind of like we want peace. It would be really foolish for him not to look at his men, count the numbers, and just blindly go to war against a bigger king with a bigger army. That's not a great way to get peace. How many of you know it's not a great way to get peace with your wife if you just start yelling? Anybody? You want to show your hands? Yeah, there's a few. Luke? Yeah, I see that hand. Okay. So a few of you have learned. Some of you still have to learn, right? <laughs> there's good ways and there's, there's, there's wise ways to get peace. And the best way here isn't for him to go to war and to try and conquer this bigger army. It'd be much, much easier to negotiate peace. The wise thing for the smaller army and king to do would be to surrender. What I believe Jesus is saying here in this story is, listen, you represent the little king with the little army. And God is the big king with the much bigger army. And God has a plan, right? And he is going to bring you into his kingdom, right? And you're going to become his subject. But he wants to, in so doing, transform your life. He wants to release his Holy Spirit to work in you and through you to become his disciple and to become his loyal subject and serve him. So the foolish thing for us to do here is to fight God. How many of you want to go to war with God? telling you right now it's not a good idea. Anybody's ever tried that? Not, not a good idea, right? The thing to do here is to surrender. The foolish thing to do is to say, no, God, I can do better for my life. No, God, I don't trust you. I want to do it my way. No, God, you can't have access to this area of my life or to that area of my life or to my finances. No, the wise thing for us to do isn't to resist God. It's to, rescind, it's to surrender to God. The wise thing for us to do is to surrender. I think for us often, if we try and fight this battle, we're going to be left feeling restless, frustrated, tired, and void of joy. But when we surrender to him, the opposite is true. That God is a good God and he, when we surrender to him, when we renounce all, remember that we're not surrendering to a tyrant king. We're surrendering to the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one that will never be conquered. The one that is a loving father that calls us by name, that knows us, that has his best intentions for you and I. This is who we surrender to. The wise thing for, you, for us to do is to say, God, here I am. 
all of me. Take all of me. I surrender all to you. Not just sing it, but to do it. I, I believe that this is what the picture is. And what does the story tell us? That when we surrender all, that that peace we're trying to negotiate for, that God just gives it. He gives us peace. He gives us peace. I want to ask the worship team to come up as we wrap this up. I think that so often this is a battle that many of us fight. And it's one that we, we go back and forth on, this piece of surrender. Listen, I know I'm talking like this is an easy thing to just do. I acknowledge that surrendering is not easy. But I want to say this, that surrendering is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of humility. It's a sign of humility. And the word says that God gives grace to the humble. When we come before God and we surrender, it's an acknowledgement of who he is. This mighty and holy and magnificent God. Who am I with my little army to come before him and say, I can do better. I want this on my terms. Man, this God is trustworthy. He's worth serving. He's the one we want to follow. Because anything we can try and do in our own strength, and our own ability in this life, trying to live our best life, friends, it pales in comparison to what God has for us when we live for him and for eternity. He wants us to surrender all because he wants to work in and through our lives. And you have a tremendous call in your life. God has called you to be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus, to live for him, for his plans and his purposes. And for me reading this passage, it's been a tremendous reminder of that. I'm just going to ask if you guys can stand. We're going to make time for a bit of a response and then worship here. And Remember that this is a good God we're talking about. I know this message isn't, isn't necessarily fluffy and easy, but this is the kind of message that changes lives. When we respond to Jesus, when we choose him not just as Savior, but as Lord, God does something. When we die to self, God does something. When we stop and we count the cost and we get the information and we dive into his word, God does something. And when we surrender all to him, he does something. I just, as I was preparing this, I just feel like this morning, if choosing Jesus as Lord has been something that you kind of just wanted to ignore, you're really comfortable choosing him as savior, but choosing him as Lord has been a challenge. But you're hearing this and you want him as Lord. I wanna ask that you respond. And if you're comfortable, I'd like you to come up front. We've got a team of some leaders here. We'd love to pray with you. So if that's you, come on up. I also think that for many of us, this thing of surrender is tug of war with God. And I just feel like God is saying, trust me. 
trust me. Open your hands and trust me. Look at the birds of the air, right? God looks after them. He's trustworthy. If that's you in this season and you recognize that you need to trust him and that you need to surrender to him, it's not a sign of weakness. This is a way that we let God work in our lives. Also, in the same way, I want to ask you to come up front. If you need to surrender afresh, come and respond. Come up front. Don't wait. If there's a little thing jumping up and down in your heart, yeah, that's the Holy Spirit. We want to respond to him. It's good. He's trustworthy. Come up front. We want to pray with you. I'm going to pray for all of us. And as I'm praying, if that's you, don't be shy. Come up front. We want to pray for you. Lord, I thank you for your word that's powerful. God, I thank you that you are a good king. God, you're a good king. As challenging as this message is, Lord, you're trustworthy. You're a loving and a good father. We want to respond to you, Jesus. We want to respond to all that you have. Even now, Father, as we just are focused on you and we turn our attention and worship, Lord, I just ask, Father, for those that are here that need to surrender afresh, that are holding tight to things that they need to open their hands to, Holy Spirit, I ask that you speak to them, comfort them. Lord, I know that this has been a challenging season. I know that fear has come against many. Father, I pray you come and you give faith and courage and boldness to your sons and daughters now. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's focus our attention on him and let's worship. And if that's you and you want to come and respond, we want to pray for you.